This message is brought to you by Moira Pentecostal Church. We hope that it will encourage, challenge, and inspire you in your walk with God. To Chronicles chapter 12. Second Chronicles 12 then. Reading from verse 1. <clears throat> now it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself that he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel along with him. Let me just stop there for a second, just to, as an aside, just to say this, that uh, any national leader, be it king, king, queen, queen, president, prime minister, first minister, deputy first minister, anyone who forsakes the law of the Lord, it won't be too long till the nation follows. And we have seen it again and again and again in our generation. And it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. Because they had transgressed against the Lord, they came with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen and people without number who came with him out of Egypt, the Lubim and the Sukkim and the Ethiopians. And he took the fortified cities of Judah and came to Jerusalem. Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah who were gathered together in Jerusalem because of Shishak. And he said to them, Thus saith the Lord, You have forsaken me, therefore I have also left you in the hand of Shishak. So the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves, and they said, The Lord is righteous. Now when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, saying, They have humbled themselves, therefore I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance, my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they will be his servants, that they may distinguish my service from the service of the kingdoms of the nations. So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took everything. He also carried away the gold shields which Solomon had made. Then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. And whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guard would go, go and bring them out. And then they would take them back again into the guardroom. And when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him so as not to destroy him completely. And things also went well in Judah. Thus King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem and reigned. Now Rehoboam was 40 years, 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city in which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah, an Ammonitess, and he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. The acts of Rehoboam, first and last, are they not written in the book of Shemaiah, the prophet, and Ido the seer concerning genealogies? And there were wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. So Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And Abiah, his son, reigned in his place. Amen. King Solomon was, without question, the wisest and the wealthiest king that ever lived on earth. His wealth was almost beyond our comprehension. He had 3,700 and 50-something-odd tons of gold. It over 35,000 tons of silver. In one year, he had 666 tablets of gold in, given to him in one year. That would equate today to something like 10 billion pounds in one year. And he had that year after year after year. So he was fabulously wealthy. His own house, his palace, his table was set. Everything was gold from the cups, the plates, the glasses, the cutlery. Everything was pure gold. He had wealth beyond imagination. 
And so he reigned, uh, and at the beginning of his reign, he did exceptionally well because God gave him such tremendous wisdom. People would come, kings and queens from all over the then-known world, to actually to sit at his feet and to listen his wisdom. He wrote over 3,000 proverbs and over 1,000 songs. He was highly gifted, an incredible wise man who became a very foolish man towards the end of his life. One of the major things that he did that was good was he built the temple of the Lord. It took 200,000 men seven years to build the temple of the Lord. And no expense was spared. His father David had left him everything he would ever need to build the temple. He didn't have to raise any money, any offerings. It was all there for him apart from his own fabulous wealth. So you can imagine the temple of the Lord was built without any expense whatsoever. And it took seven years. By the way, it took 13 years to build his own palace. And so he was a great builder. Now, when he built the temple of the Lord, uh, he only used his own people, the, the Israelites, he only used them as overseers in the actual building of the temple. The 200,000 people he were building were aliens in the land, people that had been conquered. So he used them and their gifts and their talents. But he got 30,000 of his own people to cut down the forests of Lebanon. And they had to take one month, every third month, they had to go and leave their home and leave their business, leave their farms, leave everything and go to Lebanon and cut down these trees. And that was a lot of pressure. That was a lot of uh, stress upon all of those families. And of course then, in doing that, he appointed a man called Jeroboam. Jeroboam was from Ephraim and uh, he was a courageous man, a warrior, but he was a very industrious man and he was smart and so Solomon sensed that in this man, and he put him over those who were cutting down the trees, those who were working. And, uh, and he did that very, very well. He also, and this put pressure on the people living under his, his kingship, he also, because of his great, uh, uh, his great retinue in his house, he had a thousand wives, well, 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's, that's a lot of women, isn't it? Somebody says that's 999 too many. <laughs> And they all had to be fed. And all the horses that he had accumulated on himself, all which was against the law of God, both wives and horses, wasn't supposed to do this, but he did it anyway. And they were all foreign wives. Many of them were, were princesses from kings and from abroad. And, and a, lot, a lot of this was to make treaties with these kings. But he was also was fulfilling his baser desires. So towards the, the end of his life, uh, you find that these foreign Queens, these foreign concubines and wives, were turning his head away from the Lord and onto worshiping these other idols. And one of the things he, uh, he got done was uh, to feed all of these and to feed all of the horses, he divided up the whole country into 12 provinces, 12 sections. And he made every province, every section, he made them for one month feed everybody under his household. Didn't matter whether they had any or not, whether they were starving or not, they had to feed the king and his household. And so, towards the end of his life, he began to worship these other gods, and he began to be tough on his own people, and it, it was getting very difficult to live under his kingship because he forgot the law of the Lord, and he was leaving it aside, and he was making up the rules as he went on. And anybody who forgets the law of the Lord, be they kings or presidents or us sitting in our seats on Sunday, we forget the law of the Lord, we'll start making up our own rules as it suits us. And so, it came to the point where he died. Oh, by the way, I should have said this, that Jeroboam, uh, he was out in the field one day overseeing his workers, and a prophet came to him. And the prophet had on a, had on a, a beautiful new coat. And the prophet took it off, and he tore it into 12 pieces. Prophets in those days did things like this as signs. He tore it into 12 pieces, and he gave 10 of the pieces to Jeroboam. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, in effect, God is going to give you ten tribes of Israel to rule over. But you're not going to get them all because he's keeping one back because of the honor of his servant David. And that would be Judah. Actually, Benjamin came with Judah. And Benjamin was a very, very small 
uh, tribe, and they were almost swallowed up by Judah. Later on, this became the divided kingdom. The ten northern tribes was called Israel. And uh, sometimes they were, were called Samaria because their capital, Samaria, uh, was in Israel, was in the northern kingdom. Sometimes they're just called Ephraim because that was the largest tribe of the ten. The two smaller ones, Judah and Benjamin, was the southern kingdom, commonly called simply Judah because of its sheer size outweighed little Benjamin. And so whenever the prophet did this, that uh, Jeroboam immediately felt, hey, God's given me this. I'm going to take it right now. So the Bible says he raised up his hand against Solomon. In other words, he rebelled against the king. And he shouldn't have done that. He should have waited. But he rebelled against the king. And Solomon was no fool when it came to rebellions. And he threatened to kill him. So what did he do? He ran to Egypt with Shishak, king of Egypt. And he stayed there until Solomon died. And when Solomon died, then Jeroboam came back to rule over the ten tribes, the ten northern tribes. And the first thing he did then, because Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son, now was ruling in Solomon's stead, but he was only ruling in Judah. And the first thing that Jeroboam did was to come to Rehoboam and said, Look, your father made very heavy weather of us. He put it, I'm paraphrasing, he put it under a lot of pressure and it was tough to live under his regime. Now, relax. You know, stop making us come and feeding you people and all the rest. Relax. Don't, don't put us under any more pressure. No more duties. No more taxes. Nothing. And uh, Rehoboam says, well, give me three days and I'll give you your answer. So whenever they left, first people he talked to was Solomon's elders. These were people who had run Solomon's kingdom. So these were wise men. They were older men. They were mature people. And he asked them, what should I do? And they says, well, here's what to do. Serve these people. Be their servant. Bless them. Help them. And if you do that, they'll become your servants. And they'll bless you. And we can basically live at peace. So that was, seemed to be a good thing to do, didn't it? But you know what he did? He totally and utterly ignored that advice and he went to the young men. These was his lackeys. These were young men he had grown up with. And when he became king, he brought them into positions of prominence and he listened to them. And you know what they said? They said, listen, here's what to tell, uh, here's what to tell Jeroboam when he comes back again. Here's what to tell him. Say that my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. In other words, if you think you got it bad under my father, wait till you get under me. I'm telling you, things are going to be 10 times worse under me. And so he had that haughty, arrogant, bullying attitude. And Jeroboam left, and the kingdom was divided ever since. Five years later is where we got to in this story. Five years later, Shishak, king of Egypt, God had given him five years to repent of his horrible attitude. But in that time, he had married many wives like his father. He had worshipped their gods like his father. And so the time was coming for judgment. So here's judgment coming. Shishak, and we read the story what happened. But he got a little reprieve because he humbled himself. But what I want to share tonight is this, that why should we settle for bronze whenever we can have gold? Perception is one thing Reality is another. Between what appears to be and what actually is. And the Christian life, what it's perceived to be and what it actually is in reality. And sometimes there is a great difference between the two. And I want to highlight this by what Rehoboam did. Notice what he did. Whenever Shishak came, what did he do? He stripped him. He robbed him. He took away all of the gold from his own house and from the house of the Lord. All these beautiful shields that Solomon, his father, had made out of pure gold that adorned the house of the Lord. He stripped them all those, took all those away. And what did Rehoboam do? He made shields of brass, and he took them and put them in their place. Verse 1 gives us the game away. Listen, he forsook the law of the Lord, verse 14, and he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. 
Actually, this act of replacing the gold with bronze was symptomatic of his own spiritual life. Long, long ago, he had replaced gold with bronze. Any spiritual gold that his father Solomon had left him, any spiritual gold that his grandfather David had left him was gone. He lost it and he replaced it with bronze instead. Now the thing about bronze is if you keep shining it up, it looks a bit like gold. The thing with bronze is at a difference, it looks like at a distance, it looks like the real thing. It looks like gold at a distance when it's shined up, but when you get closer inspection, you'll find that it's not gold, it's just bronze. It's inferior. It's a substitute. It's not the real thing. King Rehoboam, when it came his time to go to the house of the Lord, he went through the motions. And he got his guards to bring out these shields of bronze as if they were gold. He knew they weren't gold, but it helped to keep up appearances. It's as if, hey, I'm doing what I always did. But actually, they were just shields of bronze. He had lost the shields of gold. But he went to church anyway, just to keep up appearances. There have been untold numbers of peoples, even in our wee province today, this day, this Lord's Day, who went to church just to keep up appearances. They shined up their bronze shoes. They care not for the law of the Lord. They don't seek the Lord, but they want to keep up appearances as if they do. They've lost any gold they ever had if they had any, but they bring the bronze instead. And so they do that. And for that hour they're in church, they look the part, they act the part, they may even feel the part, but actually it's all a front because it's just bronze. It's not the real thing. And sadly, Tragically, many people go to church today and they go through the motions, but it doesn't mean a thing. And they will not think about it until the next week or to Easter comes or to Christmas comes or to a christening comes or whatever comes. And then they go and they go through the motions, but it's just bronze, it's not gold. It's inferior, it's a substitute. And sadly, even more tragically, there are preachers in pulpits today. And they're just bronze, they're not gold. And they may have been to Bible college, they may have theological degrees, they may have climbed the denominational ladder, but some of them, they preach another gospel. They're not preaching the true gospel. You'll never hear them talking about the cross, talking about the blood, talking about sin, talking about judgment, talking about hell. Because it might offend somebody in the congregation if they do that. And so they put up a shield of bronze. And they shine it up. And at a distance, it looks like gold. But it's false. There are others who abuse their power, who fleece the sheep. And they're hirelings, they're not shepherds. They're bronze, but they're not gold. Rehoboam forsook the law of the Lord. And that was a major thing he did that was wrong. And once he forsook the law of the Lord, then he replaced it with that which was not gold. The word of God is gold. The law of the Lord is gold. And once we lose our gold, we will substitute it. Religious people substitute bronze for gold. Be that dogma, be it creed, be it vain imaginations or traditions of men, but they will substitute it. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 15. He's quoting from Isaiah, verse 8 and 9. 
talking about the scribes and Pharisees. He said, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The religious establishment in Jesus' day. By the way, Jesus spoke the roughest and the harshest and the hardest to the religious establishment. Every opportunity he could, he took it to have a dig at them. You read through the Gospels again and again and again. Because of their hypocrisy, he continually attacked them because he hated that with a passion. And he says, in vain they worship me because their heart is far from me. They worship with their lips, but there's no heart in it. It's all bronze, it's not gold. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. Now Martin this morning in his message touched just a little bit on this. There are a number of things in the Christian church today that are nothing more than the commandments of man taught as doctrine. It has no basis in Scripture whatsoever. But thousands love it. Thousands love it. I could mention many, but I'll name just one tonight. Generational curses to me is a blight on the Christian church. It has absolutely no basis in the New Testament whatsoever. Here's how it goes. Something like this. You become a born-again believer. You're washed in the blood. Your name's in the book of life. But you've got a persistent problem. Be that a chronic illness that has been in your family. Be that a habit that's been in your family. This is where the generational thing comes from. Be that a weakness in your life, but it's been in your family. This is where the generation comes from. And they tell us, that being the case, then you're in bondage and you've got to get rid of it. And so people go looking, digging back into their family backgrounds to try to find something somewhere that said, this is the cause of my problem. Now, I don't believe that for a number of reasons, but let me just give you two tonight, all right? Here's my problem with all of this. My biological, genealogical lineage can be traced all the way back to Adam, as can yours. But my spiritual lineage now only goes back as far as Christ. It used to go back as far as Adam, and then something happened. I was born again of God's Spirit. If any man is in Christ, he's what? A new creature. All things are passed away. All things have become new. So my spiritual lineage began with Jesus Christ. I am born again. I have had a new birth in him. I am not the man I used to be. I'm in a different family. My family, my spiritual family began when I was born into the family of God through Jesus Christ. Amen? I don't have to go digging way back. Paul said, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now we know in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about physical death and the resurrection, understand that, but it can also mean as in Adam all die. We have all died spiritually in Adam, but we've all been made alive spiritually in Christ. There has been a sea change, a step change. The moment I met Jesus and I became born again, from that moment on, I have a whole new family, a whole new lineage, a whole new inheritance. Secondly, the words curse, curses, cursed only appears a few times, a very few times in the New Testament. And none of them, none of them, not once does it ever remotely refer to somebody putting a curse on me 
or someone in my family causing a curse to happen to me, it's not even remotely mentioned. This teaching is based almost completely on Old Testament scriptures. And I'll give you the scriptures right now. This is what it's based on. Look at Exodus chapter 34. Genesis, Exodus. Genesis, sorry, Exodus chapter 34. Moses is up the mountain with the two tablets, getting the law from the Lord. In verse 5 of Exodus chapter 34. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting, here it is, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. They say, well, there you are, you see. This is something that has continued even, to, even into the third and fourth generation. But actually in those days, Moses himself lived to be 120. People lived a lot longer. So you could have a son, you'd have a father, you could have a grandfather, you could have a great-grandfather, you'd have four generations all living at the same time. Frequently happened. So it doesn't necessarily mean this is something that has gone on into years of generations. But he's talking about the Israelites here. In Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. Here it is again. Verse 5, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Do we hate him? If you're a born-again believer, do you hate the Lord? No. Absolutely not. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. If we're born again of God's Spirit, don't we love Him? Aren't we trying our best to keep His commandments? Now let me just read you Ezekiel, you don't need to turn to this, but let me just read to you Ezekiel 18. The word of the Lord came to me again saying, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set in edge. So here's the Jews. They had this proverb. They said the reason why we are the way we are the reason why our teeth is set in edge is because our father eats our grapes. In other words, we are what we are because this has been handed down to us. And God got fed up with that proverb. He gets sick of the teeth with it because it was just an excuse. It's easy just to blame somebody else, isn't it? So he said, as I live, saith the Lord, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he is not eaten on the mountains, that is the sacrifices made in the mountains to false gods, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not opposed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not executed, extracted usury, nor taken away increase, or taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man, if he has walked in my statutes and kept my commandments faithfully. He is just. He shall surely live, saith the Lord. 
if he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood, who does any of these things and does none of those duties, but is eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife, if he has oppressed the poor and the needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted up his eyes to idols, or committed abomination, if he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die, and his blood shall be upon him. If, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, he who has not eaten on the mountains nor lifted up his eyes to idols of the house of Israel and goes on and go on the same thing, says he shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence and did, not, did what was not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteous of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And on and on you could read that. Clearly making the difference. Clearly saying that each man is responsible for his own self. I'm responsible for my sins, not the sins of anybody in my past. That's what it's saying. Have we got that? So where this stuff comes from, it just boggles my mind where this all comes from. So I got a real problem with that. They say, well, what if somebody, because you hear people say, what if somebody curses me? <laughs> what am I going to do? Well, Jesus said in Luke 6, 28, he says, bless those who curse you. <laughs> he didn't say, go away for a week, get on your knees and pray against the demons. He says, bless them that curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. See, the problem is if we turn away from the word of the Lord and the law of the Lord, we'll come up with all kinds of stuff. And you can shine it up to look like gold, but it's really only bronze. It's not the real thing. Jesus healed a blind man. And this idea was prevalent in those days. Jesus healed a blind man. The first question they asked, he'd been blind from birth. First question they asked is, who did sin, this man or his parents? In other words, if it's, not, if it's not his sin that caused this blindness, they assumed that it was sin that caused his blindness. If it wasn't his sin, it must have been his parents. It must have been a genealogical thing. It must have been this generation thing. What did Jesus say? Neither has this man sinned nor his parents. He's not saying they were sinless. He's saying the cause of his blindness it's not because this man sinned or his parents, but that the glory of God should come. And you're going to see God's glory when I heal this man. Nowhere in the New Testament do you find Jesus or the apostles or anyone in the early church dealing with so-called generational curses. You cannot find it. It's not there. Not once do we ever find any apostles showing us how to search for, look for, or deal with generational curses. It's not there. Doesn't that tell you something? So why in the world are we looking for it? Surely if it's a problem, surely you'd find it in the New Testament. Surely they would have taught it. Surely Jesus or Paul or James or John or Peter would have said something about it. But they didn't. The word of God is gold. Anything less, anything more than that is bronze. Why settle for the bronze when you can have gold? Let me encourage you tonight. When you came to Jesus Christ and you owned him as your Lord and Savior, from that moment you were born again into the family of God. That doesn't mean to say you will not do some things that you're parents did 
doesn't mean to say you'll not do some things that someone in your family in the past did, but it's not a curse. No. As soon as I got saved and born again, I was in a new family, the family of God. <laughs> that's when my spiritual lineage started, and that's when yours started. I don't need to go digging back into the past. My past is gone. If I've got a sin problem, I need to deal with it. But I don't need to go into the past to deal with it. I need to deal with it now, here. And own it. Say, it's mine. Nobody else. It's mine. Let me deal with it. And I come to Christ and deal with it. Amen? Word of God is gold. Anything more, any less, is just bronze. There are a couple of words that describe the word in the New Testament. There's more than a couple, but there's just two I want to point out to you. Logos and Rhema. Logos and Rhema. In John 1, verse 1 and verse 14, in the beginning was the word, the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the word, the Logos, became flesh, and dwelt among us. Now what does logos mean? Let me give it to you in simple terms. W.E. Vine, who was the great Greek translator, he said this. Here's what it means. The revealed will of God and is used as the sum or total of the utterances of God, the concepts, the plans, the ideas, and thoughts of God towards you and I, and embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Strong says it's the divine expression of God. God hadn't spoken to the Word for 400 years between the Old and New Testaments. Heavens were as brass. God said nothing. No prophets prophesying. Nothing. And then suddenly, God was speaking again. But this time, he's going to speak through his son. This time, he was going to speak through his son. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer makes this very, very clear. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. God wanted to speak again to this world. He's got a message for this world. And he came to speak again to a lost world. How did he do it? He sent his son. He sent the word was made flesh. God's plans, God's purposes, God's speaking, his word, was embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Show us the Father, Philip said, and it will be sufficient for us. Have I been with you such a long time and you have not seen the Father? He that sees me sees the Father also. Everything I do, everything I say, every way I behave, that's the Father. Want to know what the Father's like? Just look at me. I'm the embodiment. The Word made flesh. This is the Logos of God. Jesus on earth was the living Logos of God. And when he left, this word here we've got, this is Logos. This is Logos, the written word of God for us. This is why we highly prize this word. This is why we do not forsake the law of the Lord. This is our standard. This is our plumb line. This is thus and thus, saith the Lord. Amen? This is it. This is what we go by. This is why it's under such fierce attack today and has been for generations. And the devil knows this is God's word. And he tried everything to demean it, to attack it, to denigrate it. And sadly, many of churches are helping them in that job because they dilute it and deny it. The virgin birth is denied 
Adam and Eve as real people are being denied today. You wouldn't believe. There's lots of Bible schools. If you go to them, they'll teach that Adam and Eve is just a metaphor. Not real. Honestly. This is the Logos of God. What about the Rhema? Luke 4 and 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, every Rhema. R-H-E-M-A, every rhema that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, in a simplified explanation, rhema is when the logos becomes alive to us, when it becomes personal, appropriate for that moment. Have you ever read the Word of God? You're going through a situation. You've read the Word of God. You say, please, Lord, help me. I need an answer. And suddenly, a word lights up to you. The Logos becomes rhyme to you at that moment. It's appropriate. It's what you need to hear at that very moment. If you could simplify that even more, the Logos is the said word of God. The rhema is the saying word of God. It's what God's saying right now to you appropriately at that moment. It's the same word. It's the Logos, but it's jumped out of the page at you or something the preacher said or something you read at that moment it becomes alive to you personally that's rhema Luke 4 I'm a little bit longer tonight than I've been so bear with me Luke 4 Jesus is in the synagogue Verse 16 of Luke 4. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Aren't you glad Jesus set the standard? Sabbath day where he was? In the house of God. (laughs) If he could just get Christians to get that one simple basic thing right. (laughs) I mean, that's ABC stuff, isn't it? Someone's never got past the ABC stuff. But Jesus set the tone, didn't he? So in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, he stood up to read... And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. That's Logos. He's sharing the Logos of God. But now it's about to come Rhema. Today, he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. After 700 years, the Logos was in the book, was in the scrolls. And Jesus stood up in that synagogue that Sabbath day and suddenly that Logos became alive. It became a personal thing. It became something that was his. Now was the time for that to become alive to the hearers. And he went out and he healed and he did good and healed all who were oppressed of the devil. Amen. This is gold. Why settle for bronze when you can have gold? If only we go into the word of God and seek it like a man panning for gold and say, Lord, show me your word. I don't want bronze. I want the real thing. What about faith? Faith is gold, isn't it? Presumption is bronze. Faith is based on what? The Word of God. The Logos, the Rhema. It's based on the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. When Peter walked on water, it was because the Word spoke a word to him. That was all he did. The Word spoke a word to him. And suddenly, faith rose in his heart and he jumped out of that boat. He wasn't presumptuous. 
He wasn't presumptuous. He did say, Lord, if it's you, bid me come. But he didn't go until he got the word. He didn't say, Lord, it's you, I'm coming. That would have been presumption. Lord, if it's you, bid me come. I'm waiting to hear your word. Once I hear it, I'll come. Come, Jesus said. Jesus sensed he was ready. He was willing. And suddenly, that miracle happened. Faith is a gift from God, isn't it? It's through faith that we're saved. It's by faith that we walk. It's by faith that we run a race. We pray in faith. We ask in faith. We receive by faith. It's what pleases God. Without faith, it can't please God. This is a gift that God has given us so that we may please Him. And every single one of us that are believers has got faith enough to please God if we use it. You know that moment you surrendered your heart to Jesus whom you'd never seen and you talked to God whom you've never seen. You exercised faith and that pleased the heart of God. Jesus says, blessed are you. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. (laughs) That pleased him. He who comes to God must believe that he is. He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. It's like our hand. It's like the invisible hand reaching up to God and receiving from him. With men it isn't possible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Mark 10, 27. Mark 9, 23. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Notice it says, with God, in agreement with God, in cooperation, in partnership with God. Faith and believing puts us in agreement with God. Where does that come from? The Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. What's presumption? It's based upon reasonings, feelings, undue confidence and self-pride, whatever. But why settle for bronze when you've got gold? God has given to every one of us the measure of faith. Every one of us has got it. We've got that gold. Why settle for bronze? Finally, Rehoboam, verse 1, he forsook the law of the Lord and he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. He left God out of his planning. He didn't bother to inquire of the Lord. He went to the elders and completely ignored their good, sound, mature advice. And he went to the young hangers-on, and they said what he wanted to hear. And not once did he seek the Lord. There's a lesson in that for all of us, isn't it? There's a lesson for all of us. It's good to get good advice. It's good to get wise advice. And when we get it, and where we get it, we should be willing to take it but we should seek the Lord to give us wise counsel. Maybe to send the right person into our life to teach us or to show us. Then our lives will be better for it. But we need to seek the Lord. So all he had was bronze. The devil had come and had stolen all of his gold and all he had was bronze. And he went through the motions of going to church. Only he had no gold, he had only bronze supposedly worshipping the Lord, but at the same time, he had his idols on the hills. (laughs) He was trying to run with the hares and chase with the hounds, and he can't do that. Sure you can't. You know, often I tell, particularly young Christians, often I tell them, I say, look, if you're out in the world all week and you're doing the same stuff as the world all week, when you come to the house of God on Sunday, you'll be so bored. The Word of God will be such a turn-off because your spiritual life will be so low because you haven't taken time to seek the Lord and to pray and to read and to look to God and you've looked to the Word instead. You come on Sunday and you shine up your bronze and it may look right for a while but I guarantee you if it's not gold it won't last. It'll never do. It certainly won't do God. 
and it won't do you. But why would you settle for that when you've got gold, when you've got the real thing? Amen? There's a bunch of young people sitting here. They're here tonight. There's a lot of older people not here tonight. They're watching TV. That's bronze. What good are you going to get out of it? It's going to help you spiritually? Not one jot. Something, maybe just something I said tonight or something Martin said this morning. Maybe something that happened during the worship. There'll be a little bit of gold in that to add to your life. <laughs> and then later on, you'll minister to people. You'll help people because you've got gold to do it. You're not shining up bronze. You've got the real thing, amen? Let's pray. Bless the Lord. Lord, we don't want to settle for anything less than the best. We want your plans for us because they are good. And it's they who give us a hope and a future. So we give you thanks, Lord, for your gold. For the very best that you have got for us. Lord, we want it. We don't want anything inferior. Lord, we don't want something that's a sham or false. We want the real thing. So Lord, help us, Lord, not to lose any gold that we have and then substitute it for bronze. So we give you thanks, Lord. We pray that we will be real men and women of God. The genuine article. Something that's pleasing to you. Forgive us, Lord, for the times whenever we fail and we sin and we mess up. Help us to get back on track and to keep on track and to have the gold, not the bronze. So we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. For more messages like this one, visit us online at www.mpc.org.uk. You will also find a selection of informative videos at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pepecosta.